that you may be our desire, that we may live for you alone. For you alone are worthy of our finest efforts. And Lord, speak through me to build your church this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, certainly the enemy did not want us to worship this morning. The very first song was a Christmas song that we have sung for years. Joy, unspeakable joy, remember that? There was a lot of that song. And it's from the, you know, from the moment that we've had, you know, COVID and we had to worship, you know, home and online. We've sung that song for years. It just didn't register up there. It's all in the system ready to go and it just didn't work. And so we're going to try and see if it'll work and close with that song this morning. But we'll see. Frank will give me the heads up if it's good to go or not. But anyways, okay. Now, I want you to take a look around. Anything different in this room? Just a little bit. Okay, the driving force behind our Christmas at Bible Chapel is Roger Eggerdahl. He's all in for Christmas. He loves it so much. I say that as a joke because it is not his favorite time of season because he, it's, it's so commercialized. But... Yesterday at 10 o'clock, I think there were somewhere between 18 people, by my count, that were here to help set up uh, the church here. Now, that work didn't include what we did last Sunday when a number of us went and we set, got out all the boxes and everything. And then for the, the 18 of us that were here, we took all of the garland that was out and we stretched the garland on that side all the way down there, the garland on this side all the way down here, and this stuff that's hanging up here, over here, and we had fluffers, right? And they fluffed. And if you came here and they said, what are you going to do? I want you to fluff. And so we fluffed everything, okay? And then we hung them up, okay? And that was an, uh, an exercise in and of itself. Because you imagine getting on a, a ladder and then an extension wand and getting all the way up there to get that up there. So thanks. Usually Don did it, but this year Frank did it. We had to unfluff all of the, the, the Christmas trees. And even last year we took a picture because we were confused where they went. And it just dawned on us that, well, there's windows over here, so there's less wall space. So we'll put the smaller wreaths over here and the larger wreaths where there's more wall space. They had to unfluff and prepare all of these, what are these poinsettias, right? Okay. Um, and did all that work, and with roughly, you know, 15 to 20 people, that took us about 90 minutes, okay? And so if you participated in that, could you raise your hand, okay? Thank you. Let's... Thank you for all your help with that. Now, I think it's the, is it the first or second week, Saturday in January, uh, we will take all these down. And if we have 15 to 20 people, we will take these down and put them back in the boxes and load them up back into the storage shed and have everything done within 45 minutes. Easily. Maybe less than that. Okay? Because it's always easier what, to, to tear down than it is to, to build up. Right? In May of 2000, God called me to start a campus ministry with a local church, and I called it 518 Ministries. 
And over a period of four years, uh, God built that ministry up to about 50, around 50 college students. I advertised, it was just me in the beginning, and I advertised on campus, uh, and, and my wife, but she was at home with the kids, and, you know, plastered stuff all over campus, and one person show up at what was called Prout Chapel at the time. And so I went after that and followed up some contacts, and eventually God brought me about 10 students. They hired more staff, eventually three more staff, and God used that and built that ministry up to about 45 to 50 kids over a period of four years. Uh, when that couple decided that they didn't want any more of that and had problems with me or offended, and they began to slander and lie and, and do all that, they tore down what took four years in a, less, in a few months to build. So four years to build up to 50 students, in less than months they tore that down, less than a year. Again, it's harder to build than it is to tear down or to destroy. And that's the point, really, that I want you to see, we're going to talk about this morning. Um, we're going to discuss, actually, the destruction, believe it or not, of everything in the universe. Time, space, matter, all of that. But I want to give a quick review. So get your Bibles out, turn to Revelation chapter 20. This is one of those easiest places to find the Bible. Go to the very, very end. The last few pages, you will find the 20th chapter of Revelation because there are only 22 chapters in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. People say it's Revelations. No, it is the Revelation of Jesus Christ, or it's Revelation. Okay. This is where we are. This is a quick review of verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now I'm going to set the scene for you, and we're going to use two perspectives. The first is what we call a premillennial perspective, then I'll set it from an amillennial perspective, okay? First, a literal premillennial perspective. Man has been living in a utopia, and here's what it would look like. There's an abundance of resources, okay? There's food and water everywhere. It's a gentle climate. There's long life and well-being for everybody, righteousness, joy and peace, and the knowledge of God fill the earth. In other words, we are right here at this millennial reign if you believe in a, a premillennial perspective of the millennium. Now, um, despite all these blessings, after Satan is released from prison and he deceives the nations and prepares them for war, the number of people he deceives is innumerable. And this is really, really tragic and sad. It's like the sand of the seashore. The depravity of man knows no bounds. They're in this perfect utopian environment, and look what happens. Now imagine, and this is my speculation, that since the glorified saints are, are ruling with him at this time, and they know perfectly his will, they withdraw from the cities they're ruling, and they camp around Jerusalem, waiting for the enemy to be destroyed. So you have a final battle of good versus evil. 
and all the rebellious, unbelieving humanity in the earthly millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ were destroyed by a fire from heaven. Satan is then thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented day and night forever. That is what is a premillennial, or what I call it a historic premillennial position. It's a literal interpretation of, of Revelation. Okay? Now, what if I'm wrong? When other people that are premillennialists, what if we're wrong? What if there is no thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ? Well, you need to mark it down because that would be a first, that I would be wrong. Does it to wake you up, to make you laugh? You know that I'm wrong most of the time. Just ask my wife. Okay. But what if, the, if you believe in what is called an amillennial position, and it would look like this, okay? Since I haven't talked about this as much because it's a little bit harder to to preach on because it's so figurative, but this is where we are right now, okay? In the millennial age, it's not a literal thousand-year reign, okay? And here's the verses, some of the verses that we've read, and right now, the rule is of the kingdom of God is a spiritual rule. But right now, if you're a Christian, you are not ruling with him. You're, the saints who are in heaven are ruling with him. Okay. Now, it is a spiritual kingdom that we're talking about here. Now, there is no thousand-year reign. It's what we're in right now. And they, would, they justify that and say that because a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So it's not to be taken literal. Okay? Satan is let loose, and he prepares the world and deceives the nations for the, this final battle of Armageddon. That's what we just read. He's bound also in this time frame. Whereas back here, he is bound for the, just a thousand years and let loose and then destroyed. Here, he is still bound. Well, how is he bound? It's a spiritual binding in the sense of that he, it's actually not a spiritual binding. He just cannot be bound. And I, I read up on this from all millennial uh, theologians. He is bound to, to do only do one thing. He cannot to see the nations to prepare for this final battle of Armageddon. Does it feel like Satan is bound any other way right now? No, it is not. So they take a, a I'm going to take a figurative understanding of the millennium, it's not a thousand years, but they take a very narrow, literal understanding of what it means for Satan to be bound. He's only bound so he can't deceive the nations, prematurely bring about the battle of Armageddon, where he obviously has his... his defeat coming, okay? And then, as you can see, there's, from here on, and this is what I'm so grateful for, uh, amillennialists, premillennialists, they all agree there's a great white throne judgment in an eternal state. Now, it's one of the things I found frustrating in, in preparing this. So, for example, if I'm a premillennialist, okay, and I take things literal, and I've given you that perspective because it's, it's pretty easy to, to interpret and, and to explain that way. Um, in the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, there actually are, are literal human, or human animal sacrifices. I haven't mentioned that to you. You know why? Because there's so many verses that say that we're never going to go back to that kind of worship of God. That's over with. All right? There should be an amen from that one, okay? But it's what, if I take a little interpretation of, of 
the text, and there's a literal thousand-year reign, that's a problem for the premillennialists. For the amillennialists, how do you know to go from a figurative no thousand years all of a sudden to a very narrow, literal interpretation of how Satan is bound? So it's very, very frustrating. And that's why I said in the very beginning, when it comes to the end-time things, what do we do? Hold it loosely, okay? Now, we're finally, though, in agreement. Okay, we've come to a point where in our study where, you know, it's a, Satan has come, or the, we're at the great white throne judgment, okay? Now, let me read this to you. It says, a thousand-year reign is not a literal thousand years. It began at the first coming of Christ. The saints rule in heaven with Christ as a spiritual rule over a spiritual kingdom. Satan has been bound, but he has only been bound from deceiving the nations to make war against God and the church at the Battle of Armageddon. When he is released and gathers his armies, he is defeated at the second coming of Christ and then is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. And again, finally, we come to a point where premillennialists and amillennialists agree. The great white throne judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, let's look at what I call fleeing away. Revelation 20, verse 11. Did I put that up there? Yes, I did. This is what's happening now. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So at the sight of God in the person of Jesus Christ, sitting on a great white throne, earth and heaven flee. It says, no place was found for them. My question is, what does that mean? Earth and heaven fled away. Well, let's look at some other verses, because this is how you study the Bible, to get an idea of what that means. Okay? And I put these verses up here. There's only about four or five of them. This is what the Old Testament says, one of the verses. Isaiah says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will what? Vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. So here, the idea is that the, the heaven and the earth will wear out like a garment and vanish like smoke. Okay, Jesus said this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke, letter, or stroke shall pass from law until all is accomplished. Here the idea is that heaven and earth will pass away. Now, when you look up that word in the original Greek, it means that they're going to disappear. Because that's what it means. They're going to disappear. So it's wear out like a garment, vanish like smoke, disappear. Here is another phrase. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. So here the idea is perish. That word means they're going to be destroyed fully. Here's another verse. Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So here the idea is that they are removed. And what does that mean? I mean that they are once established, now they're unestablished. 
they change. Okay? And then Revelation 21.1, you can look that up. I don't think I put it up there because you're right there, Revelation 20. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's the idea again. So, let me sum up real quick. The idea is they passed away, it discontinues in its current state. So fled away, passed away, vanished like smoke, perish, removing of things that cannot be shaken, that has created things, all of those phrases give us some insight into what happens to the earth and the heaven at when? The sight of Jesus on the great white throne. Okay? Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7, verses 10 through 12. This is the most descriptive verses or set of verses in the Bible that are found talking about what will happen to the universe, the heavens and the earth, okay? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, verses 10 through 12. So basically, go in your Bible and make a left. Go back towards the center, okay? It's too long of a verse for me to put up there, so I'll wait till everybody, if, if you're looking for it, is there. Okay? This is what it says. Verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, of course, when is that happening? At his coming, at the great white throne judgment. Okay? Verse 10. But the day of the Lord, and that will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, and then verse 12, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Let me explain to you what's going on here. Reserved for fire, what does that mean? If my guess is this, it may refer to the fire that came down from heaven to devour the armies of Satan. The fire may also have the effect of destroying the earth and the heavens. It's popular to think as well that how else could the earth be destroyed? You've heard this before, it's been very popular when you talk about the end times, a nuclear holocaust. Okay? That's one of the ways that we think, or have you know, speculated, that things could end. Now, verse 10 tells us the heavens. And by heavens, I want you to write this down. It means the word space. They will pass away with a roar. That's an onomatopoetic word. Boy, say that again, onomatopoetic. Anyone know what that means? Onomatopoetic, poetic? It's a word that sounds like what it means. So Peter is revealing to us what it's going to sound like when the heavens and the earth pass away. What will it sound like? Well, the word literally means the roaring. It means a rushing sound or a great noise or a whizzing, a whizzing sound. I believe it means the phrase, I'll pass away at the roar. It sounds like 
the sound of logs in the fire when you hear the whizzing sound as they are burned up. You ever heard that sound before? There's a, as a fire, and there's what happens to wood. It will burn up, and there's a great heat's given off. There's a crackling sound, right? A popping sound. There's also a sound of what? That sounds like a whizzing, or a, you can suck it in, or a whizzing sound. Okay? Now, imagine that sound only amplified intensely because it's happening where? Not just in a campfire where we're sitting around enjoying marshmallows and hot dogs. It's everywhere. Yeah. Now, it says, And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the word elements, the Greek word stoichian, that refers to the basic elements. What are those? Atoms that are made up of what? What are atoms made up of? I mean, we're going to get into science here and physics here in a moment. Electrons, neutrons, and protons. Protons, thank you. My wife is going to love this sermon because we're going to get into physics here in a moment. Um, I thought about asking her about this because she knows this stuff way better than I do, but I didn't want to ruin the sermon for her. So the basic elements at the atomic level, they are, um, that make up matter, they melt with intense heat and are destroyed by burning, according to the text. The word destroyed means they, to disintegrate or to dissolve. So the heavens and the earth and its works are totally consumed by fire and its intense heat. This is a very graphic description of the end of the universe. The earth and heavens as we know it. Now, what about science? What does science in the form of physics say about the destruction of the heavens, which is space, and the earth, which is matter? Well, let's talk about that. What's the matter? I should do this. A traditional definition of matter is what, Erica? Don't want to do that? It has anything that has mass and volume, okay? Or by volume, I mean it occupies space, okay? I'm going to sound so smart. I can tell you I spent hours going over this just to understand the basic concepts. This is physics 101. I do not understand physics. I was signed up for a physics class my senior year in high school. I dropped that faster than you can drop a three-foot putt. I was out of that class. It did not make sense to me. So I'm going to sound real smart, but you know me better than that. I am not that smart. Okay, so they were, I read this. For example, a car would be said to be made of matter because it has what? Mass and volume. It occupies space. Now, another definition of matter is that matter is simply particles in motion. Particles in motion. Let me show you what I mean by this. Because I wrote down this, science in me mixed as well as math in me. You know, understand when I took this job, there would be no math, that was my understanding, and there'd be no science. Well, look what I'm talking about right now. So, matter is made up of particles. Particles are made up of atoms. And atoms are made up of what? Electrons, protons, and neutrons. So here you go. This helps me, maybe help you. This is a picture of what? An atom. Okay, there's your nucleus. It has the neutrons and protons, and the neutrons are negatively charged, is that right, or neutral? 
Protons are positively charged, and you have electrons that circle the atom. This is what is the basic building blocks of everything, of, of, of life and of everything, okay? Now, what my wife went to is what we all know is that matter exists in three states. Solid, liquid, and gas. And so here's another picture to show you that, okay? Because it's science, we're trying to keep you awake, and quite frankly, trying to keep me awake. This is a, supposed to look like it does on my picture, but you can't see it up here. It looks nice there, but not up here. This is ice, okay? You have ice, and when you melt ice, it turns into what? Water or liquid. And then when you boil water, eventually you reach a boiling point, it turns into a gas, okay? A vapor, right? It evaporates and so on. So those are the, what we know is the three states of matter. Everybody with me so far? Everyone knows this, right? Except me, I forgot it, okay? Now, here's the thing, what I wanna show you. The particles are grouped here for a solid that look like this. So we're down to inside you and inside this, you know, everything, okay? There's particles made up of atoms. And the atoms, or these particles, look like this in a solid, okay? This is a particle, all these particles, okay? Pretty simple, right? They are grouped in a, a, a regular arrangement, but notice that they have very little space between them. You see that? This white area here, that's space, okay? Now, what are these particles doing? Well, they are always in movement. They have what's called, I think it's kinetic energy or energy, and they are oscillating or vibrating like this. Now, in a solid state, they have a strong bond that keeps them from separating, but they're always in movement, okay? And they're vibrating around a fixed point. So they have a definite shape, definite volume, okay? That's a solid. Now look at the difference between a solid and a liquid. The particles are grouped in a less regular arrangement. See that? What do you see now? More space, exactly, between them. And therefore they can move around more freely. Okay? Now we have the last state of matter. It's in a gas form or gases. What do you notice here? Particles are spread out, organized into a random pattern with even more space between them. And so the particles just move completely freely. The bond has been broken, we think. And so they're just moving around, whatever, okay? And by the way, if they're, they're, they're still in like a, I was going to have like a, piece of wood and a cup of water and then a, a propane tank, but inside my propane tank at home is matter in the form of gas. And they're moving around and they're colliding and with each other and with the, you know, the can that they're in. That creates pressure. And so when I open it, you shh, and the gas can get out. Okay. So, me, stay with me. This is the properties of matter so far. Okay. Particles, and what makes up particles? Atoms, and atoms are made up of what? Electrons, protons, neutrons. They have energy, okay? And they have what? Their space. You with me so far? Trust me, you're gonna see how this ties in to what the Bible says. Now, here's what I didn't know because I never really studied physics. Did you know in regards to space, physics tells us that though matter and space are different, they can't exist without each other. I did not know that. Did you know that? They can't exist without each other. Particles need space to exist since they are what? Constantly in motion. And conversely, space needs 
particles to exist. So that's one more, but there is one more property of matter, and let me explain it to you. Just follow me. I'm going to start over here. I'm going to walk to this tree, okay? Now, I am matter. I am full of what? Particles that are made up of atoms and protons, neutrons, electrons. I have energy. I have the ability to walk across to the Christmas tree. What is in between me and the Christmas tree? Space. So if I walk across here, okay, that's the illustration. Now, what did I just illustrate? Okay. Let's say it took me about, I don't know what, three seconds to go from there to there, across the room to the Christmas tree. I am matter that has energy to move. What is between me and the other side of the stage is space. So we have matter, energy, and space. But there is one other element or one other property of matter that I just illustrated to you when I walked across there. Can you tell me what it is? Time. How long did it take me to walk across there? Roughly about three seconds. Now here's the other thing. Physics tells us that time is a property resulting from the existence of matter. I did not know that about space or about time. I'm assuming because it's quiet in here, you're blown away by how smart I am, or you're just struggling to stay awake at this point in time. Okay. As such, time exists, ready for this? When matter exists. Follow me? And I read this in science magazines and in you know, my commentaries and you know, studies, you know, theologians talk about this, okay? Now the inverse is true. Without time, there's no matter. Well, why? Because science says that motion, and we're always in motion, the particles are always in motion, require time because if something moves from one place to the other, there has to be what? Time. You cannot have matter unless you have time because you can't have motion unless you have matter, unless you can move from one place to another. And it can't move from one place to another unless there is a passage of time. That makes sense. Are you with me so far? And this is physics 101. It blows my mind away. It is hard for me to grasp this stuff. Now, watch this. Let's go back to the very beginning. Okay? The very beginning. In the beginning, God created what? Heavens and earth. So what do we have here? In the beginning, it's time. God created energy. Heavens, which is space, and earth, which is what? Which is matter, okay? We know that from out of nothing, because God has eternally existed, he spoke and created everything, okay? This tells us that time, space, and matter had what? A beginning, okay? Now, let's jump ahead to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. So turn there in your Bibles, to Revelation 20, verse 11.
This is where we are in our study. What does the Word of God say happened again? Is everybody there? At the sight of the great white throne, earth, which is what? Matter. And heaven, which is space, they what? Pass away. So what's happening here? Well, human history has ended because there's been a, a, a resurrection. And let's say that, that, that you are, that the all-millennial position is correct. Everybody's resurrected at this point in time. Believers and unbelievers, saints and sinners, we're all resurrected, okay? And we're at the great white throne, and there's Jesus sitting on that throne. Where is heaven and earth? It is gone. We have now entered into, believe it or not, eternity, the eternal state. So what do you mean by that? I'll explain in a moment here. At the sight of the great white throne, earth which is matter and heaven which is space passed away. Human history has ended. There is no more time. Since there is no more time, there is no more matter. Since there is no more matter, there is no more space. Because physics tells us you can't have space without matter. And you can't have matter without time. Okay? So when time ends, creation as we know it, Everything that we see here, everything we know, it ends. So when Peter writes, the elements have dissolved in fire, it is not that they changed into a different state of matter. I don't think it's what science tells us. I don't think that's what the Bible is telling us here. The elements have dissolved matter. There is no more matter. If there is no more matter then there's no more space, since you can't have space without matter. And since there's no more matter, there's no more time. And this makes perfect sense, because we are now in a place, in the presence of, of Jesus, at the great white throne, there is no more physical universe. You see that? There is no more physical universe. There is no need anymore for the physical universe because all that is left at the great white throne, believe it or not, is what is eternal. God is there. His word is there. The souls of men are there. And guess what else is there? Every male, female child, they are in the uniquely fashioned eternal bodies. Eternal, resurrected bodies that are fitted for heaven and glory, that's the bodies of the saints. And there's also eternal, resurrected bodies fitted for hell and damnation. Scripture is clear. People outlast the current material universe. And what God has done at his coming, or at the, if you're at that fire and everything, he has uncreated everything. He uncreated everything he created in Genesis. And where are we? We are somewhere in timeless, spaceless presence at the great white throne.
Dr. Donald Barnhouse said this, there is to be an end of the material heavens and earth which we know. The reverse of creation is to take place. That's what's happening. It is the reverse of creation. They are to be uncreated. As they come from nothing at the word of God, that's what happened in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, they are to be sucked or whizzed. And that sound, the great noise, that roar, back into nothingness by the same word of God. Because he's going to create or bring down what? A new heaven and a new earth. Now, this is why I believe that everything will be destroyed. There are those who think that the, the earth will be purified and, and, and transformed, and they very well could be right as well. I think what the Word of God says and what science tells us, it's probably going to be destroyed. Does it really matter? Not really. But what I want to show you is, though, is that what science fits with the Word of God. They're not totally separate. Now, why would God uncreate? Because the title of the sermon is the uncreation. Because everything right now is contaminated with sin. I mean, how contaminated is the creation? Well, is man contaminated with sin? Absolutely. Is the earth or matter then contaminated with sin? What about the heavens? Are they stained with sin? Yes, they are. Even the intermediate heaven where God dwells has tasted sin. What do you mean by that? Well, Job tells us that who is allowed to be in the presence of God at this point in time? Satan is. It's all contaminated. So the a billion, billion, trillion, quadrillion, how many trillions or billions or quadrillions you want to say, the farthest reaches of the universe are contaminated with sin. There is no place that sin is not corrupted, so the current universe will be replaced by another. It's called a new heaven and a new earth that will never know the contamination of sin. So God closes the book on time. The universe as we know it has come to an end, and since time and creation began together, they end together. Now, here's the thing, which is why I shared those illustrations at the very beginning of the sermon about building up and decorating the church and, and building a ministry and so on. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 tell the story of creation. Two chapters. The uncreation, a few, a few words, right? Not even, you know, a few verses. That's it. The God of creation becomes the God of destruction. The God who moved and brought into being becomes the God who moves and eliminates from existence. And what it, what's left? Judgment at the great white throne in the absence of heaven and earth, space and matter and time. Now, I have not had such a hard time coming up with an application point than for what I do with this sermon. What can you get out of this? What can you apply for this? As simply as this, I can praise God for his sovereignty over creation. He spoke, everything came in, and says, it's all going to end as well. Okay? But I thought, let me explain this to you, throw a little science in here, give you a little different kind of sermon. 
so you'll understand that at least, if it is indeed completely destroyed, as I think it is, boy, the Word of God in science, science submits once again, as it always has, to the laws of God. Amen? Amen.